Welcome, church family. Come on, Bangor, let's give it up for Old Town. So glad you guys are joining us here today as we jump into my absolute favorite topic of all, and that is the supremacy of Christ. Supremacy simply means to be superior to all others in authority, in power, and in status. And now through the month of November, we're going to be in the book of Colossians. Today, Colossians chapter 1, next week chapter 2. So we're going to cover a chapter a week through the month of November. And today you are going to see the supremacy of Christ in the universe. And this is such an awesome and powerful topic. Jesus Christ is the most important personality in the universe. Jesus Christ is the God of heaven revealed as the Son. And of course, Jesus Christ is the heartbeat of Christianity. It's the very essence of all that we believe. It's the very foundation of our faith. The deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, God becoming man in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This notion, this idea, this truth that Christ is God is the battleground by which we fight all the cults and all the isms in the world. And in chapter 1 of Colossians, what we're going to take a look at today, you are going to see the supremacy of Christ, the deity of Christ. And hopefully you're going to see it like you've never seen it before. It's such an awesome, exciting chapter, Colossians chapter 1. Somebody once called the Bible the Jesus book. And in a sense, it is true. If you understand the Bible, you understand that this is the book about Christ. It's the book about the Lord Jesus. For example, in the Old Testament, there is the preparation for Jesus coming. And then, all these prophetic signs point to Christ, Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ coming from God. And then in the Gospels, we have the presentation of Christ. Here He is. The Gospels, the books of biography about the life of Christ. And then in Acts, when the church is born, we have the proclamation of Christ. The message of salvation in Christ is announced first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. In the epistles, and that's what Colossians is, one of the letters to the church, we study the personification of Christ. How Christ, who had died and has risen from the grave, returns to live in his people. Christ being the head, and we are his body. And then finally in Revelation, there is the predomination of Christ. Christ on the throne. Christ as the king. Christ as the all-powerful one. And here we have, in the Jesus book, the message of Jesus. The Bible is Christ's story. Some people say that's how you define history, his story. It's about Christ. It's the book that tells us about who God is. It's the book about the revelation of God and the coming of Christ into the world. It's the book about God becoming man. In every aspect of the Bible, facets of this truth are made clear. And perhaps of all the statements in the Bible about God becoming a man, none is more significant than in Colossians 1. For here we find the identification of the Son of God very, very clearly. So let's jump right into Colossians chapter 1. 
I'll start right in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, a sent one of Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. So it's obvious from this very first verse, who is the author? Of course, it's Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit with the help of Timothy. And what's interesting to notice about Colossians is Paul is writing this from prison in Rome. How many know that Paul was a jailbird? He was in and out of jail a lot. In this particular case, this is his first Roman imprisonment. And he's then under house arrest for about two years. And while Paul is in Rome under house arrest, Timothy's with him. Different brothers and sisters come and visit him while he's in jail. And from this season of his life, about 60 to 62 AD, Paul writes four letters, four epistles to the churches. He writes the epistle of Ephesians. He writes Philippians. He writes Philemon. And he writes Colossians. And we're not sure which order he wrote those in, but these, these epistles were written while Paul's in jail under house arrest. So it wasn't like your typical bars, you know, he's, he's confined to a home, but his, his friends are attending to his needs, bringing him food, bringing him reports of the churches around. He's under house arrest. And then he's released for a, for a couple of years, and then he goes back again under Nero and he gets his head cut off. But this is that time in his life when he writes these four letters to the church. Now, Colossians, of course, when the letter was written, was not divided into chapters and verses. How many know that came centuries later? But now we have Colossians in four chapters. And the first two chapters deal specifically with doctrine. And the last two chapters deal specifically with conduct. And so this week, today, and next week, we're going to be talking about doctrine out of Colossians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 2, and then we get into conduct. Now, here's how it went down, and I'm just imagining this in my mind this week. So Paul's under house arrest, Timothy's with him, and they get another caller, and this time it's Epaphras. And he comes, and he's from Colossae. He's a fellow servant, a faithful minister of the Lord, and he comes and he visits Paul and Timothy's there. And he says, Paul, I want to tell you about the church from my hometown, because Epaphras was from Colossae. In fact, many people think he is the one who actually planted the church there. And what's interesting is Paul had never ever physically, that we know, been to Colossae. He had never met these people face to face. That's interesting to note. But Epaphras brings him a report, and he says, listen, you've got to know, Paul, that the church that we started here, it's doing well. These believers, they love God. They're faithful. They're growing in faith and hope and love. But there's some issues. And the issues are revolving around false doctrine. And interestingly enough, some of this false doctrine I still see propagated in the church today. And what was going on was kind of two different belief systems kind of converging together. One is, on the, on the one hand, the, the believers at Colossae were hearing about uh, Judaism. 
And so we're going to see it next week in chapter 2. They're talking about circumcision. They're talking about you can only eat certain kind of foods. You have to celebrate certain Jewish holidays to be accepted by God. And all this is kind of mixed with a super spiritual Gnosticism, which simply means this, that these people believed that knowledge was superior. Anything spiritual, anything invisible, anything intangible, that is the higher good. Anything physical is evil. It's bad. Physical, bad, spiritual, good. And so there's this blend of Judaism and Gnosticism where they're like lifting up this superior super knowledge. And I see it happening today in some camps in Christianity. People think their Christianity, it's all about visions. It's all about dreams. It's all about angels. It's all about knowledge. And there's truth to all that, but that's not what it's about. That's not what a relationship with God is about. It's about Christ, and we're going to see that here. So what happens now in verse 3 down to verse 14 is Paul uses a couple of different prayers. He has two prayers. And the first one is is really more like a thanksgiving. We're going to see that one. Then he goes into a prayer for them to have the knowledge of God's will. Because how many know that's what they need? They need knowledge of God because they're getting all this bad doctrine. And I've often said bad doctrine is kind of like how Satan works to try to poison God's people. Now, we used to live in the country and we had a little farm. We had horses at one time and we had cows at one time. We had chickens. That was kind of a fun season of life. I had a tractor. Pop, 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 pop. Was, I called it my tractor therapy. I'd go out in my little Kubota and I'd mow. It was a lot of fun. But what happened one year was this. We got rats in the barn. And I'll never forget what happened. I've told this story before because it was so freaky. But I have a pickup truck and I go down to the barn because we kept our trash in the barn And apparently I didn't cover one of the trash cans well, and I had a little friend inside it, but I didn't know it. So I grab the trash, and I'm putting it on the back tailgate of the pickup, and when it plops down on the pickup, out pops this little rat. And I'm looking eyeball to eyeball with this rat. And what he does next freaked me out. I still have nightmares about it. He literally jumps like underdog in a rat body. <laughs> so you don't know what underdog is. That's dating myself. Anyway, he jumps right by my head. I'm not kidding. I'm not exaggerating at all. Right like this. And that was a high jump. Hits the ground and scurries. I can still see the leaves kind of as he's scurrying in the... So I was like, Wah! you know, it was gross. But I said to myself, you know what I've got to do? I've got to kill this thing. But how do you kill a rat? You can't just put a bunch of poison down and expect him to eat it. You've got to give him something good to eat and put a little bit of poison in it to kill him. And that's what you do. You put a little peanut butter. You get a, one of those little um, bars. I think they got oatmeal in it, and they smell really good, you know. And you put that down there. 99% of it is edible and smells good. It's the 1% poison in it that will kill him. That's what happens with doctrine. A lot of times, a lot of what we believe about God, about Christ, about the Scripture, is truth. 
But what Satan does is he works. And here's why we're so often told to look out for false teaching, to watch your life and your doctrine closely. It's the 1% that can kill you. And false teachers come, and a lot of what they say is true. It's biblical, but it's the little bit that'll kill you. That's how Satan, you want to poison a, a coyote, you don't just throw a piece of steak out there. You don't throw a piece of poison out there. You throw a nice steak with a little bit of poison in it, and you'll get it. And that's what happens. People, if they're not careful, they swallow bad doctrine, and it can shipwreck us. And so Paul, after Epiphras comes and is talking to him about this, this doctrine that's being propagated of Gnosticism, and they're elevating knowledge above Christ, and they have weird, strange doctrine. He's bothered. And I can see he and Timothy talking about it. It's just getting all over him. He's, he can't sleep. He's up in his little house with his little chains on his feet. Shh, shh. <laughs> over a cup of tea, or I don't know what they I don't think they had coffee back then. And he's saying, Timothy, I just I just feel this burden from God. I have got to address this problem before God's church is shipwrecked. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I can see a little candle flickering on a little table. He takes his parchment and his pen and begins to write the words of Scripture, this letter of Colossians. He goes on to say in verse 3, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. He's praying for them, even though he's never met them face to face. Because we have heard of your faith. How did he hear of his, their faith? Epaphras. In Christ Jesus. And of the love that you have for all God's people. And the faith and the love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. And about what you have already heard in the true message of the gospel. The good news that God has given us. That has come to you. And in the same way, the gospel, it's bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. How many know it's still bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world? Because it's God's word, God's message to us, his creation. Just as it's been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. That word understood God's grace. Now, there's some times when I have felt like worship can be shallow, even though it can be entertaining. And I appreciate skilled musicians. I think the lights and stuff are cool. I like all that stuff. Don't you? But can I tell you, if under, you know what? You want your worship to be meaningful. You want your worship to be deep. That comes with understanding. With understanding comes appreciation. With understanding now comes the ability to offer back to God praise and thanksgiving for what he's done because we get it. And they understood God's grace. And he's praising God for them and he's thanking God for them. And he goes on to say in verse 8, you learned this. You heard the gospel preached from this church planter, Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. And who also told you of your love, told us rather, of your love in the Spirit. And so he's encouraging them. He's praying for them. He's thankful for Epaphras and for the report that he's got. He feels inspired by the, by the Spirit of the Lord to write to them, to correct them, to save them so they don't get poisoned by this false doctrine. And again, there was this belief 
And the heretics were saying in this church that Christ is not God. Yeah, how could he be? Because anything fleshly is bad. And God is immaterial and he's invisible. So Christ can't be sufficient for salvation. And in addition to Christ, because everything spiritual is puffed up, there must be the worship of other spirits, of angels. There must be the elevation of special visions. There must be a certain knowledge that is sort of this super knowledge, that which is attainable in Christ, in addition to what Christ has done. In fact, the heretics had said that Jesus Christ is only one in a long line of spirits descending from God, and that although Jesus was one of the good ones, he's not God, and he's not even an adequate Savior. There is knowledge beyond him, and that is the only way to salvation. So the attack of this particular heresy, which apparently did develop into Gnosticism, was at the deity of Christ and his total sufficiency as the Savior. And so Paul takes this issue head on in Colossians. And now we see in verses 9 to 14 a prayer. And this is a prayer that I pray over our church family, and I encourage you to pray it over your family, pray it over your friends. It's very similar to a prayer that we'll find in Ephesians. He has some wonderful prayers there in Ephesians as well. As he's in prison, I think he had a lot of time to pray, don't you? And so here's a prayer that's wonderful. He said this, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. And we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will. I pray that all the time. Lord, fill us with the knowledge of Your will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Why? So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. One of the things I've been struck with in our church family lately, and I have conversations every week with some folks in our church, one of the things that's been alarmingly lately is alarming me lately is some of the conversations I have with people and seeing a lack of understanding that they have of the scripture. And some of these folks have been with us for a while and I'm like, that's not right. Why don't you know this? Have you not been listening to me? Am I not communicating clearly? So we need to pray for people's eyes to be opened. We need to pray for the knowledge of God's will. We need to pray for spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So they can live that life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing, and here's the emphasis again, in the knowledge of God, the, the knowledge of God's will, the knowledge of God, not your stupid spiritual stuff that you think is more important than having this practical, biblical understanding of Christ and who he is. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and perish patience rather, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness. How many remember when you were in the dominion of darkness? When you were dead inside? When Christ was just a word that you swore, used for a swear word, and you didn't have light? And then one day, God in his mercy reached out his hand to you through the gospel and the lights came on and you were translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And in the light, now you begin to see, amen? For he's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the sun he loves 
in whom we have redemption. We've been bought from sin. We've been bought from darkness. And we've received forgiveness of sins. Marvelous. And now, in verses 15 to 20, which is the centerpiece of Colossians chapter 1, we see this poem. We see this this beautiful description of Jesus. In verses 15 to 17, it describes Jesus Christ as the author and the king of creation. And in verses 18 to 20, it describes Jesus Christ as the one who begins the new creation. And I'm going to share with you three different ways, angles, facets of understanding these two separate portions of Scripture here, right in the heart of Colossians chapter 1. Here's what we find. Jesus is paramount over everything that he has created, and he is preeminent over all that he has redeemed. Another way to say it is this. Jesus has first place over the cosmos and the church. Final way to say it. He is Lord over everything that he has made, and he is Lord over everyone he has saved. This passage is one of the strongest in Scripture as it relates to the superiority of our Savior. And so I want to go over real quick four characteristics that deal with his supremacy over creation and four over his supremacy over his church, over his new creation. Eight supreme truths about Jesus Christ. Again, this is the heart of what he is, Paul is communicating to refute this heresy and to help the church understand that the deal is Jesus and who he is. So four truths about the supremacy of Jesus Christ over creation. Let's look at Colossians 1, 15 and 17. The Son is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created. Things in heaven, things on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in all him, all things hold together. I mean, talk about amazing. Let me, let me break this down for you real quickly. Four truths about Christ. This is what separates us from the cults and from the isms and from all false religion. This is the deal. This is the heart of Christianity. It is Christ. And know this. That the Son is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God. Muhammad's not God. Buddha's not God. You're not God. Jesus is God. Paul doesn't mince his words here. He says he is the image of the invisible God. He's not just a symbol of God. He is God himself. The word image in Greek is E-I-K-O-N and refers to likeness, manifestation, or replica. In other words, Jesus is the exact 
representation of the Father. He is the invisible image. He's the visible image of the invisible God. Remember, was it Thomas came to him and said, Jesus, show us the Father. And what did Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. And there is a mystery in Scripture that has been revealed, and it's hard for finite minds to comprehend nonetheless. It is the, it's the doctrine of the Trinity. And you say, but you won't find the word Trinity in the Bible. That is true. But you don't find the word Bible in the Bible either. Did you know that? It's called the Word of God, the Scripture. But we very clearly see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You remember at Jesus' baptism? What happened? Jesus is being baptized by John in the Jordan. And what, what does everybody hear? A booming voice from heaven. God the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And what comes and lights on Christ and anoints Him for ministry? The Holy Spirit. We see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. Right from the beginning in Genesis, we see God is, in the, in the beginning, God created man in His own image. Actually, it says in our image, we created Him. It's the unipleral noun, Elohim, is the Hebrew word. The only way I understand it, it's, it's kind of like a tricycle. This is, this is as simple as I can understand it in my mind, the Trinity. You've got one tricycle with three wheels. It's still the same trike. It's got three wheels. The, the Godhead is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the precise copy of God because He is God. He both represents and manifests God to the world. There's a theological term known as the kenosis of Christ. That means when Christ came and humbled himself and left heaven, though he were rich, Paul says in Corinthians, he became poor that we through his poverty might become rich. He laid aside the attributes that made him deity, God, his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence. He laid that aside and he became like us. And that is the story of Christmas. We're going to be talking about that soon. But Christ is God. He is the exact image. He is the visible image of the invisible God. And here's how you tell true biblical Christianity from false religion. What do they do with Jesus? Who do they say that Jesus is? That's what Jesus said in Matthew 16. That was the big question. It's either an A or an F. There's nothing in between. Who do men say that I am? And what did Peter say? You are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you're right. Jesus is also the firstborn over all creation. He's the honored son of God. He is the heir. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses mistakenly believe that this verse teaches that Jesus was a created being and therefore he is not God. That's similar to what the heresy they were believing in Colossae was. But actually the phrase firstborn is most frequently translated as heir or owner. In ancient time, it meant the ranking one or the supreme one, the heir. For example, Jacob was not born first, but he was the heir. King David, as it says in Psalm 89 and 27, that God appointed King David as the firstborn, even though he was the eighth son. What does this mean? It means he was the most exalted one. Firstborn, therefore, is a title of honor or position, not chronological order. So when 
when Paul is saying he's the firstborn over creation, he's not saying he was literally physically born. That's not what this is meaning here. Was he physically born? Yes, in Bethlehem. But was that when he first came to this earth? Or was he in existence prior to that? Prior to that. <laughs> That's what we see here in the next verse, verse 16. What does verse 16 say? For in Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Was Jesus there in the beginning? Yes. He is God. He created everything. Created by him and for him. Jesus is the sovereign creator. He was not created himself. And that'll blow your mind. Who created God? He was. I remember as a kid laying in bed. I'm like nine years old, pondering this thing. So God, when did you start? I always was. I just couldn't get it. How many know it's hard for the finite to explain and comprehend the infinite? And I remember my brain doing flips as a little boy. Just couldn't grasp that one. Jesus always was. He is God. He is the creator of all things. Now, in Colossae, because the false teachers taught that the physical world was evil, they thought that God himself could not have created it. They reasoned that if Christ were God, he would be in charge of only the spiritual world. But Paul explained that all thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers on heaven and on earth, both the invisible and the visible, are under the authority of Christ because he created them. Do you see why when we're talking with people about other religions, we, we don't compromise? How can you compromise God? How can you say, oh, your religion is just as valid? No, you're either God or you're not. <laughs> now, lovingly, kindly communicate that, but you can't, don't be wrong on this one. You could have all the knowledge in the world and miss it on Christ and spend eternity away from Christ. Or you could be wrong on everything else, but get Jesus right and go to heaven. He that has the Son has life. And he who hath not the Son hath not life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. What will you do with Jesus? Who do you believe Jesus is? He is the Son. He is God the honored one, the firstborn over all creation, the creator of all things. And he holds all things together. This universe that God created, Jesus, he also sustains and maintains it. If he were to withdraw his hand, it would be chaotic. But he sustains it all. He holds all things together. Remember, when the Jews were talking to Jesus in John 8 and they were not believing his deal. They, they could see his miracles. They couldn't deny it, but they, they couldn't comprehend. What, who do you think you are? You're not even 50 yet. And you know what he said? Before Abraham was, I am. And you know what they wanted to do then? Kill him. Because he made himself equal to God. Who... How did God reveal himself to Moses in the burning bush? Who do I tell sent me? 
I am that I am. And they knew that's what he was referring to. Jesus holds all things together. Christ is before all things, both in time and in rank. He's not only the creator of the world, he is the cohesion that keeps it all together. And by him, everything came to be. And by him, everything continues to be. Hebrews 1.3 reminds us that he holds everything together by his powerful word. And if he were to remove his sustaining power, everything would dissolve into disorder. Jesus is supreme over creation. Amen. And then he is also supreme over the new creation. Colossians 1, 18 to 20. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. These are God's words for us. Revealing the majesty, the divinity, the glory of the Son. Jesus is the head of his body, the church. So the shift here happens from the, uh, the uh, natural creation to the new spiritual creation. And it says that Jesus is the head. By that, it means Jesus is the authority, not the Pope and not the pastor and not the board. Whose church is it, did Jesus say? In Matthew 16, I will build my church. It belongs to him. He's the head. He is the head of his body, the church. And the head gives the body the ability to produce growth, and without it, the body would die. When someone's brain dead, how many know they are dead? But when that head is alive, the body has hope. Jesus is supreme in the church. And if he's not, there's, there's not a church. It's Lord Jesus. If he's not in control, it is not the church. Doesn't matter what you put over the, the, the name of the door. If Jesus ain't in the house, it's not the church. If Jesus ain't in the house, you're not the church. You have to be born into the family. Have that spiritual birth. You must be born again. But Jesus is the one who is the head of the church. And when a church loses connection to Christ and changes his word to make it more palatable for culture, it is no longer the church. Whose, whose word rules supreme, in, supreme rather, in the church? It's the head. It's Christ. And then he goes on to say he is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead. That word beginning actually has two meanings. It means to rule and to begin. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. The church is the creation of Christ, and as such, we must follow his lead. He is the firstborn from among the dead. How many know the resurrection is the exclamation point on who Jesus said he was, the Son of God? When he conquered death, he conquered sin on the cross, and he conquered death, hell, and the grave through the resurrection, and he is the firstborn from among the dead. And his resurrection is the guarantee that we too will rise again. That's awesome. This is the most awesome stuff in the world. And Jesus, verse 19, 
has the fullness of God dwelling in him. It gives, and it says in, in here, uh, Colossians 1.19, that God the Father has great joy and pleasure to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. It greatly pleases the Father for the Son to have preeminence over creation and the church. The fullness of God dwells in him. In him, not around him, not upon him, not under him, in him. The word dwell means to take up residence. It's used in the sense of a permanent dwelling and would remind believers of God's desire to choose a place for his name to dwell in the Old Testament. Colossians 2.9 says this, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. We want to see God. You see Jesus. You see the fullness of God in bodily form. That's why it is so important to understand that Christ had a physical body. Again, Gnosticism said, that doesn't matter, it's all spiritual. No, a physical body is important to understand. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lived, and Christ became that sacrifice who was able to bear our sins on the cross. Finally, Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. In verse 20, Paul describes the work of Jesus and reconciling the world to himself. As people come to saving faith in Christ and are reconciled to Christ through his blood, they become members of the church of which he is the head. This word reconciliation means the restoration of friendship and fellowship after estrangement. It also means to change thoroughly from one position to another. Reconciliation happens when someone or something is completely altered and adjusted so that a relationship of peace happens. So, four things real quick, and then we'll close with uh, verses 21 to 23. Three, rather. Paul establishes four elements about the reconciliation of Christ in this verse. Number one, we see the focus. He reconciles to himself. The focus of reconciliation is God's creation to himself. And we see the scope. Everything, all things are going to be reconciled in the whole universe to God. He's in control of the whole thing. The result is peace. Do you have peace? Do you have peace today? Peace is only found with reconciliation with God, which can only be found through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and faith in that work. And that is the means through his blood shed on the cross. I want to close with this, Colossians 1, 21 to 23. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you. You are at peace with God by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. I love this. Without blemish and free from accusation. Isn't that awesome? If, what's the condition? You continue in your faith. Don't become an apostate. Don't back, turn your back on God. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out on the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Colossians 1. It's almost... It's almost so much to absorb that your mind just is like, you just have to ponder it. 
the reality, the deity, the divinity, the power, the supremacy, the majesty of Christ and who he is. That's why we proclaim him boldly. That's why we preach the cross. That's why we preach Bethlehem and the virgin birth. That's why we preach the sinless life of Christ, because it is humanity's only hope. It is God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the honored Son of God, the firstborn over creation, where the fullness of the Godhead lives in bodily form. It's Jesus. Hold high, Jesus. You can talk about God all day long, and it doesn't ruffle many feathers. You start talking about Christ, people get all bent out of shape. Why? Because he's God. He's the deal. Boldly proclaim him. Get to know him. Be filled with his spirit. Be reconciled to God through faith in Christ. Amen? Amen. Next week, we're going to get into some really interesting things. And I think it's going to open some of your eyes, especially... See, I grew up in a Baptist church. And then when I was a teenager, my mother went to the Pentecostal church. And then I kind of went charismatic. And then I could kind of come back, so I don't know what I am now. What do you argue now? I'm a Christian. I love the Bible. I love Jesus Christ. I love his body. I don't think any of us have all of our doctrine 100% right, including myself. But I'm trying, aren't you? But we've got to love God and his word. And we have to have peace with God. And that only comes through faith in Christ, through his shed blood on the cross. And so the most important question you can ask yourself is this. Do I have peace with God? Are my sins forgiven? Do I have eternal life dwelling in me? Have I been born into the family of God? And that happens when a man, a woman, a student, a boy or a girl in their heart understands that we are lost, that we are sinners, that we have broken God's commandments, that we don't have it all figured out. We've rebelled against God. We, we need his mercy. We need eternal life. We need our sins forgiven because we are really guilty before God. We have broken his commands. We've broken his laws. We are guilty before God. But the gospel, the good news is this, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that life is found in the Son. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God, the Son of God who died on the cross and His sinless blood was spilled on the cross to pay for your guilty blood? And He became a substitutionary sacrifice for us. God poured our sins on Him on that tree. He bore our sin and our shame. And in return, when by faith we call on Him, repenting of our sins, putting our trust in Him, there is a divine transaction that happens. We call it being born again. We call it um, salvation. We call it justification. But we are made right. Our sins are atoned for. They are covered. They are eradicated. We are at peace now with God. It comes through Christ. Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Have you made him your king and your Lord? Is he in control of your life? Or are you still calling the shots? Have you humbled yourself 
under his mighty hand. Ask for mercy and forgiveness for your sins. And put your faith and trust in the risen Savior and received his mercy and his grace and his goodness. I'm going to give you a chance to be reconciled to God even right now in Old Town, online, wherever you are. Let me pray for you first. Father, I pray for all those under the sound of my voice right now, whether they're here live or watching via video or on social media. I thank you, Lord, for how you love your creation. Lord, we are made in your image, men and women made in your image. And the truth is, Lord, we have rebelled against you, all of us. There's none righteous, no, not one. But God, somehow in your mercy, you've revealed the Son to us. We believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. We believe that he lived a life of perfect obedience to you. And therefore, he was the one who was the only one who was able to pay for our sins on the cross. And Jesus, we acknowledge that you are God. You are the living hope. And we turn from our sins now and we put our faith and trust in you, Jesus. And ask for your mercy and forgiveness. We want to obey you. We want you to be the Lord in our lives. Put your spirit inside of us. Wash our sins away. Heal our hurts and our brokenness. Give us hope for tomorrow. Put eternity in our hearts, Lord. We love you and we want to learn about you and grow in the knowledge of you. So we thank you for hearing our prayers. I pray, God, for Christ to be formed in each one of us. That we would know the hope to which we have been called. That we would bring you glory and honor through our lives, through our choices, through our desire to obey and to please you. And thank you for the joy you give us. Thank you for the kindness you've shown us. Thank you for the way you provide for us, Lord. We love you. And I ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the strong Son of God. Amen.